All right, we're going to spend the next hour getting started on our discussion of eschatology. Now, eschatology is the doctrine of the last things or the last days. It comes from the Greek word eschaton, which means the end. Um, what we're going to do tonight is make an overview of the three main different understandings of how the data of Scripture can be put together. There are basically three views. Now, what we will do with the rest of the course is explore Scripture and see which of these views really is the soundest. And I think you all know that I'm going to teach you premillennialism. But as we do that, I will try to give a fair shake to the other views as well. Okay, systems of eschatology. The goal of a system of eschatology, when, now when I say a system, what I mean is a cohesive, internally consistent, biblically-based synthesis of bringing together of all the data of Scripture into an understanding of how things are going to happen so that all the pieces fit. You know, think of yourself opening a box with a jigsaw puzzle in it. And each piece of the puzzle is a little piece of data that comes from Scripture. And the question is, what's the right way to put those pieces together? Okay? That's what we're looking for. Now, the three major systems of, of eschatology differ on two key issues. The first key issue, and this is the most fundamental one, is the relationship of the second coming of Christ to the millennium. Will Christ come before the millennium? Will Christ come after the millennium? And sort of hidden in this question is the question of what is the millennium and is there really a millennium? And you'll see how this works out in a little bit. The second question is the relationship, and, and when I say relationship, I'm talking about relationship in time talking about sequence, okay? The second issue is the relationship of the rapture to the second coming. Does the rapture happen before the second coming, at the beginning of the tribulation? Does it happen in the middle of the tribulation? Or does it happen at the second coming, at the end of the tribulation? These are the two key issues. Now, what this does is the fact that we've got two key issues. It leads to a two-tiered classification of eschatological systems. Now, I know this all sounds very technical, but stick with me and it'll make sense in a couple minutes. Okay. The most important differences in systems of eschatology are the differences between the pre-mill system, the post-mill system, and the on-mill system. These are the three main systems. Everybody who has studied eschatology has essentially landed in one of these categories, and I'll tell you what they are in a moment. Now, within those categories, if you hold to the post-mill system, you hold to a rapture happening at the end of the tribulation. There's no other way to do it. If you hold to an amill system, you hold to a rapture happening at the end of the tribulation. But if you hold to a pre-mill system, as I do, and I think most of you do, it is possible 
to argue that the rapture happens at the beginning of the tribulation or sometime within the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation. All of these are at least logically possible. Now, I will argue that one of them is biblically correct, but they're at least logically possible. They don't even make any sense. Pre-trib and mid-trib don't even make any sense in the post-mill or on-mill view. Now, again, you'll see why in a couple of moments. But the reason I put this up here is that I want you to see that the system that I am going to teach you is the most complex and it has the most variations within it. And yet, I think it is the correct system. Okay? Now, what are we starting with? What's the basic, most raw data of Scripture about the end times? We know that in the future there's going to be a rapture. Does everybody know what the rapture is? Okay, we all know what the rapture is. It's an event in which Christ comes down from heaven with the spirits of the saved dead in Christ. They receive new resurrection bodies and living believers are caught up in the air and as they go they are transformed and they get new resurrection bodies. That is the rapture. Okay, We know that that's in Scripture. We know that Scripture talks about something called the tribulation period. Jesus talked about it a lot in Matthew chapter 24. It's spoken of in the other Gospels. It's spoken of in 2 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians. It's spoken of a lot in the book of Revelation. There's something in Scripture called the tribulation period. It's also mentioned in the Old Testament, by the way. There is the event called the second coming. Now, when I say the second coming proper, what I mean is the actual event in time when Christ returns to the earth. Now, broadly viewed, one could argue, and this is from a pre-mill perspective, that the tribulation, the whole tribulation, is part of the second coming because in that seven years leading up to Christ's return, what he is basically doing is he is bombarding the empire of his enemy prior to invading it. And there are contexts where we will talk about the second coming, meaning that whole jumble of events that's actually going to take seven years. But those who hold to a post-mill or an on-mill view don't believe that there's going to be a literal tribulation of seven years. And so they would not concede that that whole mess should be viewed as a unit. But everybody agrees, every every evangelical, Bible-believing person agrees that Christ is coming back physically to this planet. We all agree on that. Okay? Everybody agrees at least that Revelation 20 talks about a period of a thousand years. Okay? Everybody agrees on that. Now, people who hold the post-mill and ah-mill view argue that that's not really intended to be understood literally. People hold to the pre-mill view, believe that it is to be understood literally, and that what Revelation 20 does is it tells us the length of the period of the kingdom that was spoken of extensively in the Old Testament, Messiah's future kingdom. Okay, Everybody agrees that there's something called the millennium 
but not everybody agrees what it is. Okay, everybody agrees that in Revelation 20, there's a final event of judgment, the great white throne judgment, which will occur right before God destroys this universe and replaces it with the new heavens and new earth. Okay, Nobody disputes that. All Bible-believing Christians believe that that's going to happen. And everybody agrees that God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Now, that new heavens and new earth will bear a lot of resemblance to this one, but it's going to be different in some fundamental ways, and we'll talk about that. Now, basically, in an effort to build a system of eschatology, what you have to do is take these events and put them in some kind of a sequence such that the unfolding of these events makes sense in a cause and effect way and accomplishes what God says he's going to accomplish. Okay? To put it another way, these are the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, the biggest pieces. The question is, how should they be assembled? Okay? Now, let me show you the three basic views. We've named them already, but we need to look at them in some detail. Okay. The first view is the amillennial view. Now, it's called amillennial because amillennial in Latin means no millennium. Okay? Amillennialists don't believe there's going to be a millennium, even though Revelation 20 says there will be. Now, when I say that, I'm not accusing them of saying that scripture isn't true. What I am saying is that their interpretation of scripture says that the thing in Revelation 20 is not meant to be understood literally. It's a spiritual or abstract concept and it doesn't refer to a particular period of time. Okay? Their view is that we live in the time between the cross and the second coming. This is the church age. During this time, scripture predicts that events on earth will go downhill steadily, that the sin of man will increase steadily. That will continue until Christ comes back. His return will coincide with the rapture and it will be immediately followed by the great white throne judgment. GWT is great white throne. Those three events all happen at essentially the same moment in time. And once they have occurred, God will replace this universe with the new universe and we will move on into eternity and live in the new heavens and earth. Okay, what's very nice about this system is that it's very simple. The second coming, the rapture, the great white throne judgment all happen at essentially one moment in time. Okay? There's no tribulation. There's no millennium. Now, what they would do with the tribulation is that they would say that places in Scripture that talk about a tribulation, are, again, it's just a figurative description of the fact that the world is getting worse and worse and worse and the sin of man is getting deeper and deeper and deeper. But they would deny that it refers to any literal particular period of time of any specific length. Okay, now the second view, and just for a moment, ignore this. It looks just like the first view, doesn't it? 
the sequence of events is exactly the same. However, the understanding of events is different. Postmillennialists get their name from the idea that the return of Christ, the second coming, comes after the millennium. Now, their view is that between the cross and the second coming, for a while, human society was going down and getting worse and worse and worse, but the church, through its influence, is going to reverse that, and the world is going to get better and better and better, and when human society worldwide has been Christianized and purified and made orderly and righteous and godly, even for those who aren't saved, okay? when the influence of the church has cleaned the world up, then Christ will come back. Okay? The philosophy of history between this view and this view, are, the two philosophies are dramatically different. Does anybody believe that anymore? Okay, that's a great question. Surprisingly, this view is coming back. Now let's talk about this historically. Okay? And some of you may have heard me talk about this before. This view um, this view was the view of the church essentially in the early part of the Reformation. Okay? Some of the some of the reformers were amillennialists, some of them were postmillennialists. When in the late seventeen hundreds and early eighteen hundreds the the uh, industrial revolution began. And science began to develop all kinds of neat new things, you know, steam power, railroads, telephones, electricity, you know, vaccines, all those kinds of things. People became very optimistic about the future of the human race. And particularly in the middle to late 1800s, this view was very strong. And, you know, the British and the Americans. We, we thought that we were going to change the world. We thought we were going to civilize those savages and bring them prosperity and peace and they would learn to speak English and they'd just be like us and the millennium was going to come in. That's really the way people thought about it. Okay? And you know, if you think about the little, a little bit of the flavor of the history of that period, you know, when Christian missionaries went to far off lands they weren't just bringing the gospel, were they? They were bringing Western culture and civilization. And it was all tied up in this idea that the church was going to clean up the world and make it a good place for Christ to return to. The Battle Hymn of the Republic is a post-millennial song. If you go and listen to the words, a lot of the hymns in our hymn books or post-millennial songs. A lot of the ones that sort of have a military character to them and talk about the church marching on and savages will come to acknowledge their Lord and things like that. There's a lot of this post-millennial flavor to it. Now, your question was a great one. Does anybody still hold this? This view was very powerful during the Victorian age. The First World War gave it a serious blow and the Second World War killed it. Okay. However, for interesting reasons, this is coming back, and it's coming back not really on a biblical basis or even on a basis of looking at world history, but more on a militancy basis. 
There's a portion of the church that wants to do to the world in a Christian sense what Muslims want to do to the world in a Muslim sense. Okay? Muslims want to impose Sharia law on the world, don't they? That's really their plan. Okay? Nobody will talk about this in public, but Islam is not a religion. It's a political movement, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Islam is a political movement masquerading as a religion. Okay? Well, Christians who hold this view want to grab hold of the reins of societal control and impose what they understand to be Christian morality on the world. In the modern form, this is called theonomy. Some of you may have heard that term. Theonomists, many theonomists, want to impose Old Testament law on the world. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Um, A man rapes a woman, he either gets killed or he has to marry her, those kinds of things. They want to impose Old Testament law on the world. And most of those who hold this view are doing it in that sort of militant thing. It's It's a desire to take hold. It's not so much that they look at Scripture and they say, this is what Scripture says. It's that this is what we want to do and this fits what we want to do. At least as I understand it. Well, I think what they say is we're going to make things better. Okay? That's why... Is that what you're going to say? Yeah, I I know a post-millennialist the argument is that it is still getting worse right now, but nevertheless, the millennium will happen before the second coming, and it will be brought in by the church changing the world. And so we need to work harder to change the world so yeah. that it gets better. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of a political philosophy. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Now, now, a, a couple things should be said. Okay, this view was popular in the late 1800s and early 1900s at a time that the Presbyterian Church actually was the defender of the faith. You know that time when those guys at Princeton were fighting against liberalism and standing firm on the authority of scripture a lot of wonderful godly people through history have held this view and I don't mean to ridicule them I I don't think it's biblically sound or historically sound and, and I think theonomy in its present form is more about politics than it is about scripture but there have been lots of godly people who held this view, and there are lots of godly people who hold the Amil view. So, again, I, I don't, I don't. If I'm throwing stones, I shouldn't be, and forgive me. I just wanted to add one more thing that, that there are definitely, as opposed to that sort of militant uh, postmillennialism, uh, or postmillennialism almost is, requires some level of militancy in the sense of pushing the world to be better, but there are those who... But it can be done It can be done in a godly way. ...sense of how we're going to change the world for the Absolutely. Old Testament. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. It, it doesn't have to be something that's imposed by political power. I guess that's what the PTA it may be, I, yeah. I, I think there are some Presbyterians who still hold to this, but it, it's it's not very common. But it is enjoying a resurgence. Well, the PTA church is the one that's willing to slay Trump. The Presbyterian. Is that right? I see. I I can never get it straight. The Presbyterian church is right. Okay. PCUSA is the is the more liberal one, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Well. And I suspect, I suspect that it's probably not uniformly with these different churches either. You know, tenth. Sure. Well, tenth Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, the guy who was there before him, Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of the most influential Presbyterians of the last century. He was thoroughly premillennial. So. You know, it's it's not it's not monolithic at all. Okay, now the last view is the premillennial view. I hope you can see this. This is much much more complicated than either of these. Okay, in this view, we live between the church and the beginning of this period called the tribulation, which will be seven years long. Most people who hold this view. <coughs> believe that the rapture will happen immediately before the tribulation begins. After the seven-year tribulation, Christ comes back. He reigns on this earth, not the new heavens and new earth, this earth, for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand-year period, the great white throne judgment will occur, and then we move on into the new heavens and new earth. Now, basically, the distinction between this view and these two views, in terms of chronology, is that these events, which are all clustered together, the second coming, the rapture, and the great white throne, are separated in the pre-mill view. There are seven years between the rapture and the second coming, and a thousand years between the second coming and the great white throne judgment. This is much, much more complicated. Now, you should be aware, and I've stated this already, that there are some people who hold to the pre-mill view who would argue that the rapture is sometime during the tribulation, and a few who would put it together with the second coming. But they would still have the general overall sequence that you see here. Okay? Is it held anywhere? I, I, I noticed that both the A and post-millennial views hold the seven years and the thousand years both to be non-literal times. Yeah. I don't see anything about the pre-millennial view that would prevent one from... You mean about, about these, these? No, about the pre-millennial that would prevent one from seeing those the same way, that the seven years... Yeah. In other words, the timing still, you, or the you, order still be the same, but... You, 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 as we work through, you'll see why. Okay. I, I, I don't know of any pre-millennialists who does not hold these to be periods of well-defined lengths. And by the same token, I don't know any amillennialist or postmillennialist who would argue that the tribulation is of any particular length. Now, the postmillennialists would put the tribulation here between the cross and the time when the church starts changing the world. The amillennialists would typically say that it's just a general description of the decay of human society up until the second coming. 
Um, there may be some people who hold those views, but it's, it's hard to see why they would. Because it, it re what, really, what it really comes down to is that those who hold the post-mill and a-mill view hold them, among other reasons, um, for, for the reason that they don't think the millennium refers to a real period of actual reign of Christ on this earth over the nation of Israel. That's really where the difference comes in, and we'll see that as we work through it. Okay. Again, what I'm doing, what I'm trying to do here, is make you familiar with the territory and the terminology. Okay. Now remember, pre-mill means that the second coming comes before the millennium. The second coming is a pre-millennial coming. Post-mill means the second coming is after the millennium. That's a post-millennial coming. And Amil is the odd duck. It just means there won't be any millennium. Okay? Okay. Now look at the similarities and differences. We did that a little bit already. Okay? The pre-mill view understands Christ as returning to establish a literal earthly millennial kingdom. Now when I say earthly, what I mean is that he's going to be here physically on this earth He's actually going to reign as a king. You know, People are going to be able to go up to him and see him in his office in Jerusalem. He's going to be there. That's not to deny that he won't be exercising spiritual authority and there won't be spiritual aspects of his reign, but it's a real period of time. His millennial reign on the earth in the pre-mill system is understood to be just as literal as our current president's four-year reign in the city of Washington. Okay. Um, the post-mill and a-mill views treat the present church age as a non-literal millennium. Either a millennium in which the world is getting better and better or a at the post-mill view or a millennium in which, well, they've got to do something with it, so that's where they put it, but they wish it weren't there. Um, and they join the rapture, the second coming, and the great white throne judgment. Okay? Bob? Isn't also the uh, part of the reason of the amillennial and the postmillennial views is because they view the church as Israel? Yes, and we will get to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, now let's talk about terminology. Okay, I think we did this already. We can skip this. Okay, why are there different views? Okay. The different views reflect different ways of synthesizing the biblical data. Everybody's starting with the data in the same way. They're just putting it together in different ways. It's kind of like the difference between creationists and evolutionists. We're all looking at the same evidence. The question is, how do you explain that evidence in a cohesive way? Okay? The differing views reflect different starting points in Scripture. Now, you'll see this in a few minutes and as we go through the course. The different views reflect differing theological priorities. And when I say priorities, I'm talking about postulates or axioms. Everybody has postulates or axioms for what they believe. Okay? We have a postulate or axiom that the Word of God is true. Okay? Now, you can look for evidence for that, but we really have to treat it as a postulate. If you're doing Euclidean geometry... One of your postulates is that parallel lines never intersect, right? 
There are other kinds of geometry that say parallel lines do intersect. And if you use those postulates consistently, your system still works. But people start with different postulates. Okay, and the differing views developed under differing historical influences. And this is one of the interesting things about the study of eschatology. Okay? Our goals are both to understand the differing, differing views and to seek the view that is most consistent with a sound approach to scripture. All right, now let's look at what I just said in a little bit different way and make some comparisons. Okay? The Amil and post-mill views essentially start with the New Testament. And what I mean is that they look at the New Testament as authoritative and they are willing to say that if the New Testament says something that didn't seem to be said in the Old Testament, then we mis must have misunderstood the Old Testament. Or if the New Testament talks about something and says that it's an abstract concept, but in the Old Testament, it seemed to be a literal concept. We have to go with what the New Testament says. Now, the clearest example of this is the idea of the kingdom of God. People who hold this view will typically say that when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, he was talking about the reign of Jesus in the hearts of believers. And then they will say, well, the Old Testament talked about the kingdom of God, and it seemed to be talking about a time when Christ would literally reign on the earth. But since Jesus told us that that was an abstract concept, it never was predicting a literal reign of Christ on the earth, therefore there never will be such a reign. Okay? We'll, we'll cover this some more later. Now Bob pointed this one out. Theological priorities. The Amil and post-mill views are committed to the idea that the people of God are one. And that means that Israel is the church, is the kingdom. Okay? They take this as a postulate. This is not open to discussion. They say, this is true. How do we put the data together in order to make that work? Okay? Now, I suspect that almost everybody in here is a premillennialist, but there are some of you who probably would say that we are in the kingdom today. I don't think we are. Um, and you'll never hear me pray when I pray and say, Lord, um, advance your kingdom in us, because I don't think his kingdom is here yet. But the way that people who hold this view talk about it, they believe that these things are so closely identified that the church and, the, and Israel are essentially the same thing. Okay, now the historical influence that strongly... Um, the historical influence that strongly influenced the creation of these two systems, I know that's redundant, was the need to explain the Old Testament predictions of the victory of the kingdom of God over the fourth Gentile empire, which is Rome. Now, this will make sense to you when we go to the book of Daniel. But essentially what I'm saying, this is a sneak preview, is that the Amil and post-mill systems were invented in order to solve a very embarrassing problem that the Roman Catholic Church had in the 300s, which is that the Bible predicted that God would destroy the Roman Empire. And then the Romans made Christianity their state religion, and we got a big problem. Okay? And you'll see how that works out later. 
Have any of you ever heard this before? Some of you have heard it from me, but you'll see how that works. Now, the pre-mill view takes as its starting point the Old Testament. Now, what I mean by that is that premillennialists very strongly rely on the principle of the progress of revelation. The idea that what is revealed first is foundational and that what follows must be consistent with what is already revealed. So if the Old Testament predicts that one day a descendant of King David will reign over the nation of Israel, her people in her land in a time when there is life and death and birth and sin and all those things, that when we get to the New Testament, nothing in the New Testament can contradict that. That's the foundation, and what's in the New Testament must be shown to be consistent with the foundation that is already laid. Okay? You can see that this and this are very different. Okay? And by the way, don't tell people that you're a New Testament Christian. Okay? We, we are Bible Christians. Okay? We need the Old Testament. Absolutely. You know, Paul tells us that those things happen to them for our admonition. How do we understand that God is willing to accept sacrifice for sin? By looking at the Old Testament. You know, there, there are a million things that come from the Old Testament that we need to have. Now, the theological priority of the pre-mill view is the idea that God will be faithful to the promises that he made to the nation of Israel. Now, you can, you can, <clears throat> you can be even more fundamental than this. Cross out covenant and cross out Israel. God will be faithful to his promises. <clears throat> the basic idea is that if God promises something, he's going to do it. And if he said, I'm going to do it, and he hasn't done it yet, what does that mean? Okay, it doesn't mean he's a liar. It means he hasn't gotten to it yet. Okay? And if he hasn't gotten to it yet, that gives us a hint about what's going to happen. And that's basically the way the pre-mill system will be developed. Now, the historical influence that was involved in the development of the pre-mill system was the need for a consistent method of interpreting Scripture applied consistently to all of Scripture. Okay? Um, now, what I'm saying is that... Now, let's see, what am I saying? I am saying that essentially when the Reformation occurred... And Martin Luther and the other reformers said, wait a minute, the church has lost a proper understanding of the gospel. The reformers recovered a proper understanding of the gospel by applying a literal method of interpretation of scripture. Right? And we've talked about literal interpretation before in our earliest courses. Now, essentially, what happened was... A few centuries past, the reformers stuck with their old system of eschatology because they were too busy defending sound soteriology to worry about anything else. And then in the 1800s, some people came along and said, wait a minute, if we're applying consistent literal interpretation to the portions of the Bible that talk about soteriology, shouldn't we be applying it to the portions of the Bible that talk about the future? And they said, yes, we should. And they turned the crank, and what came out? Premillennialism. Now, the interesting thing 
is that premillennialism was the view held by the early church. But it was lost when the Roman Catholic Church allowed the need to defend themselves against predictions of Scripture to lead them into a different view. So, you know, this is oversimplified, okay? But essentially, for the first three centuries of Christian history, the church was basically pre-mill. They hadn't developed it to the degree that we've developed it because they were dealing with more fundamental issues. What does it mean to say that Christ is God and man? What does it mean to say that God is triune? What does it mean to say that Scripture is inerrant? You know, those kinds of issues. Then the Romans adopted Christianity as their state religion, and they were left with a problem, and they solved the problem essentially by inventing amillennialism. The church was amill until the time of the Reformers. The Reformers stood up and said, wait a minute, we've lost the truth about salvation. They started interpreting scripture literally. They recovered the truth about salvation. They were too busy defending that to worry about anything else. We get to the 1800s, and now that's pretty well settled, and somebody says, wait a minute, we haven't been being consistent. Let's apply the same method of interpretation to the rest of scripture, and what do we get? We get premillennialism. And so we're back where we started. Okay? That's basically how it happened historically. Alright? Now we'll we'll go a little more deeply into some of these things later. Okay. Sure. It's not heresy. Would they not say that that they adhere to the theological principle that God will keep his promises and he has because he's kept his promise to Israel because Israel and the church are one? Well, okay. Yes, they would. Okay, but the key is priorities. Okay? Now, essentially, comparing these two, I could relabel this. I could say that the priority here is theological and the priority here is hermeneutical. Okay, That's really what it comes down to. Um, premillennialists are premillennialists because they think that the most fundamental thing is that God has communicated to us in his word in a clear and unambiguous way. And that means that scripture should be interpreted in a literal sense. Now, for those of you who weren't here during our discussion of hermeneutics, literal interpretation means interpreting according to the literary conventions of communication that were being used by whoever wrote that portion of scripture. So it allows for figures of speech. and You know, you understand those things, okay? But a premillennialist would say that his first priority is hermeneutical. An amillennialist would say that his first priority is theological. And something has to be first. Okay? A premillennialist would say his theology comes from his hermeneutics. And an amillennialist would admit that at least in the case of prophecy, his, his hermeneutics come from his theology. In fact, there was a, there was a debate between John Walvoord and Dr. Pentecost on one side 
and a guy named Oswald Alice on the other side in the 40s and 50s. And Alice admitted in print that if you apply literal interpretation consistently to all of scripture, you will end up here. But he said, we can't because there are certain things that we're committed to and that leads us to say that we must interpret prophecy in a non-literal fashion. Now, he was consistent with his priorities, but his priorities are not the same as the priorities of, of a premillennialist. So, I, I, I would certainly not accuse Amil or, or post-mill people of heresy, not even close, and I would not even accuse them of inconsistency with their own principles. I would just say that they're inconsistent with my principles. And, 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 I, and I would push that my principle is more fundamental, but of course that's where the argument lies, right? Okay. One, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Could we go so far as to say that, that the AML, post-ML view, I mean, or is what you're saying that the AML, post-ML view would put a higher priority or a or, or on what on, on a particular portion of scripture in other words I'm oh yeah assuming that well, I wouldn't say that the Israel the church and the kingdom are one comes out of well that's that, right? that, that's, that's why I, that's why I say their priority is on the New Testament okay it's essentially okay. reading the Sorry. New Testament back into the Old Testament at least that's the way I understand it and and, and I think a lot of them would agree with what I'm saying they just wouldn't agree which priority was the right priority. Okay, <clears throat> now we're, we're going to finish with this. We're going to proceed in this course under the assumptions of the pre-mill model, but we'll discuss a-mill and post-mill views when it's appropriate to allow a balance. You know, from time to time I'll say, well, if you held these views, what would you say about this passage? Okay, Um and we will be exploring in the ST3 course, the other course that we're doing this term, the ecclesiological reasons why the theological priorities of the post-mill and amill view are questionable. In other words, we'll discuss why Israel is not the church. And so these two things are kind of dovetail and work together. Okay? We will attempt to keep in mind the value of all three views in reminding us of Christ's soon return. The most important thing about eschatology is what? Jesus is coming back, right? We all agree on that, okay? And we'll consider practical implications of the views from time to time, okay? And I will try to maintain an ironic spirit toward the other views at all times, though I may not succeed. <laughs> I rent, uh, I'll try to be nice. <laughs> peaceful. Ironic spirit is peaceful. Okay. okay. Oh, I guess I've got one more slide. <clears throat> okay. Can I have three more minutes? Okay. <clears throat> the foundations of God's faithfulness are found in the four biblical covenants, and you have some material on that. I hope you'll look at that between now and next week. God made four specific covenants with the nation of Israel and or particular members of that nation. Those covenants provide a firm basis upon which we can predict certain aspects of God's plan for the future. Now here's the key, because God is faithful. We said this before. He must because he obligated himself. 
not because we can make him do it. He must perform what he promised to Israel. And by the way, if God isn't faithful to his promises to Israel, what makes you think he's going to be faithful to his promise to allow you into heaven when you die? It, it, that, that counts, okay? This counts, and, and this, is, this is something that the people on the other t- side have a hard time answering, okay? And to me, this is very important. I am not saved yet, folks. Now, Scripture says that I'm saved in the sense that the moment I believed, I'm guaranteed that I will be accepted. But I haven't died yet, and I haven't finished sinning. I haven't been resurrected yet. What do we live on? We live on God's promise. If God's promise is not reliable, we're in big trouble. Okay, now here's an important one, and we'll see this next week. When we examine the covenants, we will see that there are unconditional parts of those covenants. Okay, an unconditional covenant is a what? Does anybody know? One-sided. Well, okay, it's one-sided. That is true. We would call it, in modern terminology, a promise. Okay, an unconditional covenant is a promise. If I say to Andrew, I will take you out to Pizza Hut this Friday, that's an unconditional covenant. If I say, I'll take you out to Pizza Hut this Friday if you get 100 on your math exam, that's a conditional covenant. Okay, that's not a promise, is it? Because he's got to do something to make it happen. And we'll see that the covenants have both of those things in them. But what we will also see is that the failure of Israel to fulfill the conditions does not render God free of fulfilling the portions of the covenants that are unconditional. Now, a common argument that will be made by people who hold to the on-mill and post-mill views is that since Israel broke its part of the covenant, God is free to break his part. But what we will see is that God didn't make the covenants that way. Okay? And then we'll see that the already literally fulfilled aspects of the covenants, because some of them have been fulfilled already, provide us with confirmation that we should expect the unfulfilled parts to be fulfilled just as literally. Okay, you know, if you run into somebody who says, well, Jesus is never going to return physically. He's just going to return spiritually. How do you answer that? Okay, Acts 1 would be a great place. Um, yeah, when, when the angel says he's going to come back in the same way that you saw him go. Okay, but what if the guy says, well, that was just meant to be understood spiritually? Well, you can, though. You know how you do it? You say that there were lots of promises made in the Old Testament that were literally fulfilled when Christ came the first time. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be the son of a virgin. You know, he's going to die for the sins of men. Those things were fulfilled literally. If those were fulfilled literally, we should expect the other ones to be fulfilled literally. So you can't argue with it now. Of course, the person won't listen to you. But you can at least defend your own thinking that way. Okay? 